Welcome, I'm Hugh Hewitt, the president of the Richard Nixon Foundation. We come to you from the basement of the Nixon Library in Yorba Linda, California. Behind me is a picture of the president's birthplace, which is also located on the site. This is part eight of Known Unknowns, Watergate, an explanation of what happened in 1970, one, two, three, and four, narrated primarily by Jeff Shepard, who was a part of the White House staff and part of President Nixon's legal defense team. He's written two books on this, a third forthcoming, I hope, and this is a taste of what would be in your mind if you actually dive deep into Watergate and what it meant. Jeff, in part seven, we concluded Leon Jaworski has arrived, James St. Clair has arrived, you have recruited a new legal team. It is November 1973. The presidency will end in August of 1974. What happens? Yes. Well, Jaworski shows up uh, in, in November, uh, distrusted by his staff because he's been recruited by uh, uh, Al Haig. He's not like the people, the, uh, the special prosecutor staff is all Ivy, uh, ardent Democrats, uh, uh, and, and, and uh, uh, hate Richard Nixon. And uh, hate, the, the, there's three tiers. There's the 17 from the, the Kennedy Department of Justice. There's the guys who cut their uh, uh, careers on prosecuting the mob, mainly out of New York. And there's the recent graduates uh, who do the, uh, the research work, who hate Nixon because of the Vietnam War. Uh, and, and they treat the Nixon White House as though it were the mob. If you were there, you must be guilty of something. Because that's true of the mob. See, it, it, but but the, the difficulty with that is that everybody is suspect. Now, we finally land an outside lawyer, uh, uh, go through a lot of candidates. James St. Clair is perfect. Uh, uh, he's a accomplished trial lawyer from a, a very distinguished law firm, Hale and Dorr in Boston. He teaches trial practice at, uh, at law school, uh, and he's the perfect barrister. But he's used to big firm litigation. So he's used to a staff that does all the work and he presents it. He refuses to get bogged down in listening to the tapes. That's tedious. Bazaar does that. He, he goes home over the weekends. He doesn't move down. Uh, he's awfully good. His arrival changes everything. The prosecutors are now faced in court with a man with great confidence of how courts are supposed to operate. The judges are more respectful. The prosecutors are much more careful. And the fight is going on uh, over the tapes and over the Nixon associates and what's going to happen. And this is the point right toward the end of December, when the special prosecutors realize, remember our, our uh, five, five days in March, five days, Wednesday night is the payoff. That's when they realize the payoff occurred that night and not before, because we were all operating under the assumption it occurred Monday or Tuesday. There was no record, but they work out, they think they can prove it's very tedious. If you had to come into court to prove this, the jury would be fast asleep because it's, it's based on testimony of five different people, but that's the time. <clears throat> they then learn that Jaworski, in a private meeting with Sirica, uh, has agreed with Sirica that they cannot indict a sitting president, that that will not happen. So... Uh, uh, they conclude 
that what they've got to do is get their grand jury testimony to the House Judiciary Committee so they can impeach the president. May we stop for a moment because Judge Sirica has made a correct decision. You cannot indict a sitting president. The Office of Legal Counsel has so averred on many occasions the framers do not anticipate it in the appropriate Federalist, which I believe is Federalist 70. You must remove him. You may then try him for crimes after he's removed, but you may not uh, indict. Were you surprised that Sirica came to that conclusion? I didn't realize that he had come to that conclusion until I got access to the prosecutor's own notes that note that. Uh, you see, what happened is when the prosecutors left office, they took their confidential files with them. So there's no Jaworski files. He took them. There's no Vorenberg files. He went back to Harvard. He took his own files with him. And it turns out there are not all of the Lacavera files that he took many with him. Jaworski had a full legal career. He died. He gave his papers to his law school alma mater, Baylor. Baylor sat on the papers. And then in about 2013, the papers surfaced. And incredible stuff. Vorenberg's papers, he took them back to Harvard. They're at Harvard's law library. They didn't surface till 2015. And I'm the first person to see both of those. So now I know what they were doing. This is finding their files is like getting the coach's playbook that beats you in the state finals. The opposing coach, now you know what he was doing. And it, it's tedious to put it back together. But now I can tell you that in a meeting dated uh, February 14th, Jaworski... 1974. 1974, Jaworski says, well, because uh, the, the people circulated a memo, the prosecutors saying, we ought to indict him, we know what he did. Uh, and he says, well, you can't, because I've, I've already agreed with Sirica that, that we can't do that. We've got to get the material up to the House. So they do this memo saying, here's the legal way to take secret grand jury testimony that's never been let out and send it to the House Judiciary Committee. And let's go talk to Sirica, work that out to be sure that he's going to accept that, because we don't want to propose it and have him cancel that too. So there's a memo that describes it. There's another ex parte meeting where Jaworski tells him what they want to do. Tells, your, tells Judge Sirica. Tells Judge Sirica. And he wants to send this to the yeah. House. Just as they feared, Sirica said, I don't think so. And then Jaworski, and you're in Jaworski's memo, describes how he convinces Sirica to do this. And in the course of that meeting, secret meeting between Jaworski and Sirica happens on February 11th, 1974. There's only two topics discussed. Sirica wants the cover-up indictments to come out in a timely manner so he can appoint himself to preside. The prosecutors want his permission in moving the, the evidence up to the House Judiciary Committee. And buddy, it's almost like a quid pro quo. Those are the only two topics. We, we only see it from Jaworski's memo. Would a legal ethicist object, a, a neutral legal ethicist object, to such an ex parte meeting on such a sub subject in retrospect? I've been on a panel several years ago which featured uh, a renowned ethics professor. Uh, I won't name him, but, but uh, very renowned and very liberal guy. 
and we showed him in the course of this the documents. And later, because he stayed over, it was a Third Circuit Judicial Conference, he's having breakfast with his wife, who's equally liberal. And she's giving him a hard time for defending Nixon's actions and criticizing the prosecutors. And I just overheard it. And he said, you need to see those documents. Those documents are incredible. I mean, any legal ethicist would say, this is unbelievable. It's, it's not just they were meeting secretly with the judge. Giving him stuff in advance that was going to come before him for rulings, it was they were writing memos bragging about how they pulled it off. And I've got the memos. So there's no question that what they decided they wanted to do was get the, uh, the testimony up, uh, up to the Hill, secret grand jury testimony, untested, no rights of due process, no confrontation, no cross-examination, uh, raw grand jury stuff that they've conditioned and occasioned. It's really interesting when you, when you look at it. There's grand jury testimony from 1973 where they really want to know what happened. Then they bring people, key people, back in February where they just want the right answer to fit into their scenario. And on March 1st, 1974, they hand down the comprehensive Watergate cover-up indictment. And it names seven people, predominantly Nick uh, uh, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and Mitchell, but there are others. And it names 19 unindicted co-conspirators. We think you guys were involved, but we're not, gonna, we're not going to indict you uh, because either you've pled to something else or we, you've made a deal, we've got your testimony. One of whom was Richard Nixon. What date does that indictment come down? March 1st, 1974. But they keep the 19 number secret so the, the president and his people don't know, and they want to use it in their notes as a bargaining position with the White House. There's a phone call the night before. Al Haig calls Leon Jaworski. Jaworski writes about it in his memo. Haig says, I hear there's going to be action tomorrow. Uh, let me ask you something, Leon. Uh, are there steps we need to take here to prepare for what you're going to do tomorrow? And Jaworski says, no, I can't think of anything that you need to do. And Haig says, you're a great American, Leon. I appreciate that. I appreciate the Vance notice. And Haig concludes they're not going to name Richard Nixon. I mean, Jaworski hasn't said it, but he's implied it. And Jaworski's too sly. He's weasel-worded it. So Haig tells Nixon, you're off the hook. But he's not. At that same March 1st event, they announce they also have a grand jury report. And the grand jury wants to give Sirica a report that they've asked Sirica to send to the House Judiciary Committee. Now, this is complicated because it's never been done. It's so complicated that Jaworski slips into Sirica's office a half hour before the hearing, and they rehearse how they're going to do this. Ex parte. Ex parte. We'll Legal ethicist would say go again. Go crazy. Go crazy. Because... Jaworski says, well, look, we'll announce the, you, do you have anything to report? We'll announce the indictment, and then we'll say, we're going to ask for special handling for the indictment. 
that will enable you to take it out of rotation, no normal judge rotation by fluke, and you can name yourself to preside, which he does later that day, and then we will tell you we have this special report, you will accept the report. So they rehearse it, then they go in and do it, and then they meet afterwards to review and relish how well it went, and they agree they'll keep in touch going forward. How do you know all this from Jaworski's notes? Jaworski's memo. He writes a confidential memo to the file. I mean, it's right there, but it didn't come out till 2013. Now, you could make the case that Sirica was supervising the grand jury, so he should have done this. He had the right to hear what the grand jury was going to do. He had the right to be asked whether the grand jury could indict a sitting president. But if he has done that, he cannot then appoint himself to preside. That's open and shut. That's, that's the, the wrong answer. Uh, uh, but Sirica was everything to everybody. That report, which was sealed until last year. The roadmap. Is called the roadmap. Two words, the roadmap because it was thought to lead the House Judiciary Committee to impeach President Nixon. Now, when you say last year, we have to remember, people may not ah. be listening. It was revealed to exist or access was gained to it in 2019. No. Oh, you're right. That's why we're doing this. No. The current chief judge of the District of Columbia Federal Court ruled on October 11th Night, uh, 2018. 2018. Yes. Last 20- year, now that we're doing... Yeah, Jan- right, right. We're January 20- of 2020, adjust I'm your year, sorry. Jeff. Okay. Uh, uh, these years pass so quickly when you get to be my age. Uh, a judicial order in response to my petition. And what she said was, look, if this stuff has already become public some other way, go ahead and release it. And they released 85% of the roadmap. So as of October 11th, uh, 2018... You could now see what the prosecutors had produced. And it was just as described in the book by their press officer, James Doyle. Sereca had said, this is James Doyle's presentation, no, I don't want it to look political. So you can have no conclusions and you can have no opinions. You can just present factual information. So the roadmap is 55 pages. And at the top, it will say on uh, uh, August 12th, uh, uh, Leon Jaworski met with uh, Bob Jones. And then it will cite at the bottom of the page the specific part of the grand jury testimony of Bob Jones that says that. And then it will say on this date, this happened. And then maybe they cite one of the seven White House tapes that they already have. So they have transmitted... Though we didn't know this until until October 18th, all copies of the White House tapes they had received, even though the circuit court which upheld their subpoena said, we're not turning this over to anybody else, this must be secret, this can only be used for prosecution. Interestingly, in Sirica's opinion, upheld by the D.C. Circuit Court, the transmittal of the roadmap, never mentions there are White House tapes because the Irvin Committee had come into court seeking White House tapes and the court had said executive privilege, you can't have them. So here, 
they're approving the transfer without saying so. Now, we didn't know that, but that's what they did, and they sent up to And House. this was released in October of 2018. Yes. All right. And so what tapes did Judge Sirica enable to be sent to oh. the White House, uh, to the House Judiciary Committee? Well, in the draft of the roadmap, uh, they ultimately name all, all tapes they possess. So this one for this reason, this one for that reason, this one for this reason. Uh, it, it, it's... What you have to picture happened is, and you can see the memos, the internal memos within the prosecution staff, uh, they get this thing ready, they then take the roadmap to the grand jury because they have to convince the grand jury to adopt it as their own, and in the course of that, they convince the grand jury of the president's personal guilt, personal involvement in the Watergate cover-up, so the grand jury indicts the president. They, they name, I'm sorry, they name him an unindicted co-conspirator, but that's what Archie Cox said he would never do. He would never name the president an unindicted co-conspirator because it would be like stabbing a knife in his back. He would be indicted, named, but not have the right to come into court to clear his name. So he said, I would never do that. But after Cox was fired, his staff said, boy, are we going to fix Nixon? We're going to do this. We're going to name him in the indictment, but send the material to the House. And what did the House Judiciary Committee do with the material? It's chaired by Peter Rodino. How long does that process take to frame articles of impeachment? And what did those articles of impeachment say? Well, they got it about the end of March, because there's litigation over the transmittal. Uh, and in retrospect, they don't know what to do with it because it's not specific enough and they can't follow it. It doesn't make sense to them. <clears throat> They're doing other investigations of the president. There's a book by the majority counsel of the House Judiciary Committee, a guy named Jerry Ziefman. His book comes out about 1998, and he says the whole purpose of the House Judiciary Committee was slow down any impeachment because they were trying to help Senator Kennedy, who was thought to run for office in 1976, and they didn't want to impeach Nixon. They wanted to wound him and limp into the election so that you couldn't, you couldn't resolve this issue. So they were slowing this stuff down, but they got this, and then uh, events started moving beyond them. They had to present proof, uh, and they didn't have proof, so they started secretly meeting uh, uh, with the Watergate prosecution staff at night, and they say it in their book, uh, May, June, and July. Of 74. Of, of 74. Now, I have to go back, Jeff, because we neglected one very important detail in our discussion of the Saturday Night Massacre and the Yom Kippur War. Yes. In the same week, Spiro Agnew is presented with an unrelated demand that he resign his office and plead guilty because they've got the goods on him for accepting kickbacks. Yes. He does, and this occurs in the middle of that most amazing October of 1973, and a new vice president must be nominated. The president picks from a list of four. He would have preferred John Connolly, couldn't get him confirmed. Also considered Nelson Rockefeller, did not believe that was possible. I can't remember who the fourth was, but of course Gerald Ford 
was the person who's selected. the uh, minority head of the uh, House uh, House of Representatives, highly respected Republican Congress from Michigan. So he comes in, he's clean as a hound's tooth on all matters, yep. Watergate. Yep. And the House impeachment goes forward at this point, knowing <clears throat> that the person who will become the president of the United States, if they are successful in removing Richard Nixon, is Gerald R. Ford. Well, but then we go back to the special prosecutor's office and we learn that uh, uh, in the course of their objective and unbiased investigation of, of the Nixon administration, they have occasion to investigate Jerry Ford to investigate Nelson Rockefeller, to investigate Bob Dole, and to investigate Governor Ronald Reagan of California, the that, very candidates who will come back to it later. John Connolly was the third, Ronald Reagan was the fourth, who was Fair on enough. the list of, that's right, not Fair Bob enough. Dole. So the, the impeachment committee gets going, they don't have enough detail. When do they frame the articles? We're coming to the end game here and it all uh, comes yep. down to the tapes. Yep. Uh, they frame the articles at the beginning of July 1974. Uh, uh, I got to jump forward a little bit because Jaworski resigns and goes home before the cover-up trial. He's, Why? He, 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 uh, he wants to go home. He didn't really want to come in the first place. And he, did, he didn't take part in the investigation of the president's top people. That was done by staff. It was already underway when he came. He, he, he presided through Nixon's resignation. We'll get to that in Ford's pardon. Uh, and then he wants to go home. So his first interview after he gets home is December 5th by Bob Woodward, and he says two things. And Bob Woodward's notes are publicly available. Uh, Woodward is complimenting him. This is the first paragraph on doing such a fine job. And Jaworski says, well, there were a lot of one-on-one -on -one conversations that nobody knows about except me and the other party. He's begging to disclose his meetings with Sirica. But Woodward doesn't bite. Then the next topic he goes to is the, the most significant contribution of his organization was to help the House Judiciary Committee, that they couldn't get started, they were unfocused, Doerr's a good man, but he couldn't get a handle. Doerr being? John Doerr is the head of the House Impeachment Committee investigation. He's the lead prominent, lawyer. Prominent Democrat, uh, uh, former assi uh, Assistant Attorney General Civil Rights Division under uh, Ted Kennedy. Did he hire Secretary Clinton? Yes, as a matter of fact, he did. Uh, uh, when he was Deputy Attorney General of the Civil Rights Division, the head of the Civil Rights Division was a man named Burke Marshall. Burke went to Yale to teach law. Uh, Burke was thought to be Ted Kennedy's Attorney General in waiting. If Ted became president, Burke would become Attorney General. Hillary was one of his favorite students at law school. He convinced Doerr to hire Hillary Rodham uh, uh, as their go-between, and she's the messenger back and forth between Burke Marshall, who's saying, slow this thing down, and John Doerr, who's trying to find busy work for the uh, House Judiciary staff to undertake. And he literally has them cutting out press reports of allegations against Nixon. And they ultimately assemble something like 36 three-ring notebooks. And when they start to summarize their work, he starts droning on about all these press articles. And that's when Doerr goes down and meets secretly with a special prosecutor, and they share their grand jury information, their prosecutor's memos. Uh, his staff came down in May and June. Uh, uh, the, 
there's a letter that says uh, we, we, we want Door to come see stuff, and I think the letter is August 28th. Where are the officers of the special counsel? Physically, uh, they're on K Street. They're they're 18, 18th and. So K. when you say come down, you mean that from the, hill. Of the House Judiciary Committee travel down Pennsylvania Avenue over to K Street. That's correct. And meet at the special counsel's office at night at when night. they are allowed to go through prosecutive memos designed solely for their eyes. Uh, uh, the book by the prosecutors says. Uh, the deputy told us we should really summarize, in case it became needed, the prosecution of Nixon. Wasn't long before Doerr learned about this and wanted to see it. He wanted to subpoena it. We said, no, if you don't subpoena it, we'll let you come look at it down here, which kept it secret from Nixon's staff. See, we didn't know that they were doing this. This is the executive branch, technically the executive branch, staffing the legislative branch in its effort to remove the head of the executive branch. They, however, frame, and that is subject for another day, got to land the plane, they frame articles of impeachment. How many? Three. What do they say? Obstruction of justice. Nixon participated in the cover-up. Which cover-up? The cover-up from the Watergate break-in. There's okay. the break-in he didn't know about. There's the cover-up. Uh, uh, not Ellsberg. This is the first article. No, one. no, no, not at all. Not article at all. Article one is Watergate. Up. Yeah. Then abuse of power. That's Ellsberg. Uh, that was 17 wiretaps. Uh, the uh, uh, a couple of other uh, the midnight bombing of Cambodia, uh, and uh, uh, refusal to comply with. Uh, congressional subpoenas. Which is resurfaced in the most recently concluded Trump impeachment. Well, Article 3 is what? Article 3 is, is obstruction of Congress named something else. What, if we have, do we have enough time? Yeah. Okay. Amazingly, Trump has two articles of impeachment. Abuse of power, the, the actual instances are different from Nixon's. That's Nixon's second article. Obstruction of Congress, that's Nixon's third article. That's refusal to, com to comply with the subpoenas. They didn't go into court. They didn't try to enforce them. They thought they'd lose. The first article is obstruction of justice. That's what Trump's people, the anti-Trump people, thought they'd get from the Mueller report. Obstruction of justice. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. But, but that did pass the committee, as did Article 2 pass the House Judiciary Committee. Nixon Article 1 and Nixon Article 2 passed the Judiciary Committee. Correct? Yeah, one vote difference, but with bipartisan. But what about no, Article 3? Uh, fewer votes, but, uh, but it passed. But partisan. Oh, hugely partisan, but, but bipartisan majorities. Uh, several three or four. It was like 23 to 10. The committee was 23 to 17. See, I, I did not know that. I thought that the Article 3, the obstruction of Congress, did not receive any Republican support. I think it, uh, you could be right. Uh, I'd have to go back. I'd have to it's, go it's, look. It's but three articles, they never get passed by the House. They're never, Nixon is never impeached. Well, let's, just, let's follow that through. We can go okay. to, uh, we can go to the end. They adopt the articles of impeachment in late July. He's, it's already become public. The Judiciary Committee adopts them. House Judiciary Committee adopts three articles of impeachment, July 27th, 28th, 29th. Uh, he's already been named an unindicted co-conspirator by the Watergate Grand Jury. Uh, so he's on the rocks. Uh, and then on July 24th, before the House acted, 
the Supreme Court rules you got to turn over these 64 tapes. Bizarre, here's the tape for the first time, concludes Nixon is, the Nixon presidency has ended, but that tape doesn't become public until August 5th. So for the public point of view, he's been named an unindicted co-conspirator. Many people equate that with guilt. He's been impeached by the House of Representatives on largely bipartisan votes. And the Supreme Court has ruled, but nobody hears a tape until August 5th, we release the smoking gun tape. Any remnants of Nixon's support disappear just immediately. The head of uh, three people from Congress come down on Tuesday. We put the tape out on Monday, August 5th. <clears throat> There's a congressional visit on Tuesday. It's ceremonial. Uh, you know, you don't stand a chance, Dick. And, and we're going to get wiped out in the next election if you're still here. And then on the evening of August 8th, he announces his resignation as of the next day. Now, I want to go back to the Supreme Court case. Yes. Who made the request for the tapes for what purpose that was then litigated? And how was it litigated? If you can give us the precise summary of Nixon v. U.S. Sure. Uh, 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 Jaworski comes out with a 64-tape subpoena. Uh, I don't rem recall the precise date, but it's after the March 1st indictment. <clears throat> so he says, we need 64 more tapes. The grand jury doesn't say it. The prosecutor says, I want it. Sirica upholds it. Uh, this is probably June, early June, late May. Uh, and Sirica says, yeah, yeah, that will do that. And then instead of appealing to the D.C. Circuit, he asks the Supreme Court to hear the case. And this is, this is legally very peculiar. Sirica said, yeah, you get the subpoena. But I get to hear the tapes, and I will decide what's, it, what's privileged. And then I'll give you what I decide you should hear. And Jaworski says, well, that's wonderful. I think we should have won hands down. And he uses that to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, He's, stop for a moment. He goes directly to the Supreme Court. Yep. What I do not, un, do not know and would like your unvarnished opinion, had the president been aware of the ex parte contacts and what appears in retrospect to be unethical conduct by the prosecutor and the judge, would that have provided additional grounds to eventually block the release of those tapes? Oh, completely. Why? Well, because Jaworski would have had to be relieved as special prosecutor, and Sirica would have had to be relieved as the presiding judge over the cover-up trial, so uh, that they would, have, they would have new people. Okay? They could still have said, oh, we need more tapes. But we could have come in and argued that you're already indicted. You don't need more evidence. You know, this is gratuitous uh, 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 piling on. But it would yeah. not have stopped the impeachment. What I'm arguing is the devil's advocate here yeah. is that even had the inappropriate conduct been known, and even had you been successful in delaying the release of the tapes from a new judge with a new subpoena, the impeachment process would have proceeded. If we had seen the roadmap which we did not see until October 11th of 2018, and in fact, I didn't get around to reading until very, very recently, uh, we would have a huge opportunity to make a dramatically different case before the House Judiciary Committee. Okay, now I want to finish up on the Supreme Court just for a second. <clears throat> We're under huge duress. James St. Clair and his team of about a dozen guys, people, co-ed, is trying to defend Nixon against impeachment in the House Judiciary Committee, 
and argue the Supreme Court case. Okay? I mean, this is a, a, a taxation of even someone as brilliant as St. Clair. Uh, uh, he's cross-examining witnesses in private in, in front of the House Judiciary Committee, and he's got to do the argument to the Supreme Court. At the end, toward the end, I learned much later, we contact Charles Allen Wright and say, look, here's the brief we're thinking of filing on appeal in U.S. v. Nixon, the tapes case. And Charlie comes up with an idea that comes in so late that we, and I'm not doing this. I'm on Charlie Bizarre, Wright. Charlie Wright. I'm on Bizarre staff. I'm not doing the litigation. That the idea only gets written into the introduction. There's not enough time to staff it out to put it in the brief itself. But here's the idea, which is really unique. Jaworski doesn't want the tapes to prosecute. He's already got enough evidence. He's already indicted. He's trying to get the tapes as proxy for the House Judiciary Committee, which can't get them directly. What an intriguing argument. And he was set to do it in oral, but you know when you come before the Supreme Court based on briefs, you don't really get to present oral argument. You respond to questions. So that particular argument was never developed. Came in late. Was it in the brief? Only in the briefest allusion in the introduction. That's all they had time to put in. So it's not fully developed in the brief. I don't know if it would have prevailed or not, but what an intriguing argument. I have to think it was true. Now, Jeff, once the court rules. Yes? What date is the court rule? July 24th, 10 a.m. on Monday, uh, uh, 1974. What happens at the White House? Uh, Nixon and Haig and Jim St. Clair are at the uh, 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 Western White House in San Clemente. Uh, we get the opinion. Uh, Bazart reviews the opinion. It's 9-0. 8-0. Oh, that's right. Rehnquist, Rehnquist is recused. recused. Uh, the first question is, is there any room for maneuver? Because we've never said we would adhere to the decision. We said we'll wait and see what the decision is. Uh, uh, there's, there's no, no, uh, no room. There's no, no wiggle room. There's nothing we can complain about. It's a tight decision. It says, unlike public is told today, it says the special prosecutor has made a case. He needs this information for criminal investigation. The Congress is not a party. The Congress is not granted access to those tapes, even though every article today says U.S. v. Nixon gave Congress the tapes. Did it defense did counsel want the tape as well? Mr. Ehrlichman, Mr. Haldeman, everyone else indicted, did they want the tapes released? Uh, I don't think so, but I think it's fair to say they had no access to the tapes. One of the difficulties in preparing their defense was the prosecutor could go see the tapes. They had to go to the prosecutor to ask for permission. How is that remotely fair? Oh, it was terrible. Look, uh, I ran the document rooms. Uh, the document rooms contain classified files. Uh, uh, if, if John Ehrlichman came in, and he did, to review his files for the plumber's case, which was the first case, uh, he comes in with his lawyer. His lawyer cannot go into the room. John Ehrlichman is allowed to go into the room where his file cabinet is, and he can take out a memo. He cannot make notes. He cannot write down anything. He cannot photocopy that memo. He puts the memo back under Secret Service uh, 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 view and me. He can come out of that room and he can make notes <clears throat> about the memo 
and he can talk to his lawyer. What an <laughs> extraordinarily different process. Well, the lawyer... I'm not a criminal lawyer, nor did I say at a Holiday Inn, but it does not seem fair to me. The lawyer was not... Uh, uh, didn't have security clearances. John, John's, you know, my former boss hired me, one of my, my most respected individuals. He's so pissed he can't see straight. Not at me, but he's pissed he can't see straight. And he leaves in a huff because he can't even get access. Goes into court, says, I can't even get access to my files. And, and Gazelle says, if you can't make this easier, we're tossing the plumber's indictment. And then the prosecutors get an affidavit from Fred Bizart that says if he had access to his files, it wouldn't change anything. So Gazelle says, oh, okay, then we don't have to worry about it. And the next day, Bizart has his heart attack. I mean, this is... I didn't know that Bizart had a heart attack. No individual in Bizart's family lived past the age of 50. He was 52. He was working around the clock on Nixon's defense. He told me when he woke up and knew he was having a heart attack, he seriously considered not saying anything because he wasn't sure that it was worth it. And ultimately, he wakes up his wife. She's doing her hair, and he says, you know, you don't have to do your hair. She drives him to the hospital. He says, you don't have to stop at 3 a.m. for the red lights. He walks into the hospital under his own power. Uh, they save him. But he died uh, four years later uh, after Watergate Who was over. Who replaced him as the lead preparatory man? St. Clair is the face and the... Nobody. Nobody. There's a, there's a famous cable from Egypt, from Al Haig, that says Shepard is now Bazart. All rights of Bazart are now Shepard's. Do nothing without Shepard's permission. And I had to, after letting Fred have two days of recovery, sneak into the hospital to get his, to brief him, to get his advice. What day is that? Got to be August. It's close no, no, to no, the no. end. No, 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 August is the end. Got to be July. No, yes, yeah, close to the end, or uh, June. It's, it's the end. So tell uh, me, tell me uh, back uh, to the White House. The, one other, the one other quickie. Right. When I sneak in, Bizarre says, don't check in. They won't let you come see me. You know, come to the room. I go to the room. We do what we need to do. He's, he's very weak. I mean, he can't do much. And the next day, uh, I'm on the phone with him, he says, you were seen. And what he implied was his friends from the Pentagon or from the agency were guarding his room to be sure nothing happened to him while he was in that hospital. Uh, and they saw me go in and do, but I was, you know, I was on his side. All right, so back to the, the White House receives, the president's in San Clemente, um, Haig is in San Clemente, I assume. The president receives news of the ruling of the Supreme Court. 9-0, no wiggle room. Eight what happens? 8-0. I always forget that Rehnquist is Well, Bazart, Bazart is told to go hear the tape that he's never heard, June 23rd. Bazart is appalled. We've been through this. Bazart mi misunderstands the tape. Bazart concludes, good heavens, the man has been lying to me from the beginning. He's been in on the cover-up from day six. Uh, all is lost. Uh, uh, and he tries to convince Haig that this tape should never become public, that, that Nixon should instead pardon everybody in Watergate, moot the Supreme Court decision, destroy the case, the, the tape, so they never become public, and then resign over the principle of uh, uh, Oval Office uh, confidentiality. Buzzhart makes that argument oh, to Haig. Yeah, to Haig. Is uh, there a written record of this argument? No, uh, the only record is that Bazart, in a 
45-minute soliloquy. When he's heard the tape and he calls the Western White House, he's waiting for the call back. And he decides, I'd better have a witness to what's going on. And he calls me down, doesn't explain why I'm there, but I'm his witness. And we wait for 45 minutes to hear the, to get the call back from uh, Al Hagan and President Nixon. And Bazart unburdens himself of what's been going on, what his role has been, what he's thought throughout, what he believes should happen now. Uh, and that has never been made public. That was, uh, in my view, uh, uh, attorney confidential. Did you write about it in your previous books? No, no. I, I, I say that uh, uh, Bazart's thought was the president should resign, but I never go into the detail of what he, what he explained to me and, and why and the wherefore. And I, I, I could tell you. I mean, please I'm not, do. Not today. No, I'm not going to do that. Uh, uh, but I remember, I remember that conversation uh, like it occurred Did yesterday. Did you take contemporaneous notes? No, but I, can, I, I have uh, recently had occasion to recreate that because I think that conversation, which is when the presidency ended, nobody else knew, but that's when the presidency ended, ought to be the opening of my book. Because my next book... He's not going to concentrate on the trial where I think they didn't get due process and all the prosecutors cheating, but what they did to Dick Nixon. And then I never written about that because I didn't have access to the roadmap. Then save it for the book. Let me conclude part eight with this. The president returns to Washington, D.C. Is there ever in a moment where St. Clair says, we shall fight on? We will fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the fields, we, we Well, never yes, give up. there is. Yes, there is. He's out on the West Coast. He hasn't heard the tape. He tells the president, we got no problems at all. I can handle it. So Nixon says, send St. Clair out on the lawn in the, the, uh, the afternoon. There's an eight-hour gap between that decision and the announcement, we're going to comply. And that's when the fight occurs. And Bazart loses the fight. And we announce we're, gonna, we're going to adhere to the Supreme Court decision and it's done because St. Clair assures Nixon nothing's going to happen. St. Clair comes back. Bazart grabs him by the lapels and shoves his nose down into that tape. And then in Nixon's memoirs, he says, and St. Clair's attitude changed completely. Excuse me. He'd been breezily confident that the tape wouldn't cause us a problem. And now he was adamant that we had to release the tape. And everything changed. The lawyers were no longer seeking to protect the president. They sold him out. They were seeking to have the president testify and assure that he never let him hear that tape before. When you look at his statement of release on August 5th, the lawyers wrote it to cover themselves. And we'll, I don't know how much time we have, but we're going to end, the lawyers were mistaken. I mean, you want to think about what went wrong. Now, it was tough circumstances. The president was on the ropes anyway. I will say that he was improperly on the ropes, that he really didn't do what he was accused of doing. But it was the lawyers in the position of Fred Bizarre, his stoutest defender, who misinterpreted the smoking gun tape and pulled the rug out from the president. Had they not done so, had they made an explanation, and we'll conclude with this, that was sufficiently persuasive of the public that the June 21st tape was not a smoking gun and was irrelevant to the Watergate break-in. 
would, in your opinion, the president have survived articles of impeachment limited to his March conversations and conduct? If we had known of the roadmap, uh, the fight was going to be over what the president did after he learned from John Dean on March 21st of the cover-up, and I think we can make a case that the president did the right thing. Would you expand on that for one minute before we conclude? Sure. Uh, 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 the, the, uh, in that famous series of conversations, the answer is we have to disclose this ourselves. We're going to send John Dean to Camp David to write the report. I'm going to call for a new investigation. I'm not going to assert executive privilege. And then John Dean pulls the rug out from under the president and goes to the prosecutors. Now, if you listen to the tapes after that week, the, the president's conduct and Ehrlichman's conduct and Haldeman's conduct is, is uh, uh, questionable. But that's because John Dean didn't prepare the report that they were relying on to call for a new investigation. And that delay, that suddenly they're looking at a, a, an accusation of conspiracy to obstruct justice on a cover-up instead of proclaiming their innocence of not knowing anything about the break-in itself. And it dawns on them, Dean has not been acting as their lawyer. John Dean has been protecting himself. We, we say, it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. That's what John Dean did. He dug them in a hole so deep they couldn't get out, and then he leapt out and said, see what they did, see what they did. Jeff Shepard, on that note, the president's support collapsed. He announced his resignation on the 8th. He left on the 9th. That concludes our eight-part series on Watergate. There will, however, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. For those who want to know what happened to the prosecution, there will be an epilogue. Jeff Shepard, thank you. Thank you, Hugh. Good to be with you.